Welcome to Hall Talk. Life is filled with unexpected moments. Thank you for joining Jared Hall, a specialist in being a generalist, as he shares biblical insights and leadership lessons while curating stories. And now your host, Jared Hall. Welcome to Hall Talk. I'm your host, Jared Hall. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today is our fourth episode of season two. And so instead of talking about the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be listening in on a conversation that I had with my friend David Lovey. David is a dear friend. He currently serves in a role as an editor at Unlocking the Bible, Colin Smith's ministry. And then he also uh, recently joined CGF Ministries uh, as a missionary as well. I'll put a link uh, below. So if you'd like to contact David or find out more about David or perhaps even uh, support David in his ministry, you'll be able to do so. But I hope that you enjoy this conversation as we uh, hear stories from David's life. And just, just to let you know, David, things happen to David that don't happen to many people. And uh, that's really the consistent theme of David's life. And uh, I hope that you enjoy his testimony that you'll hear. I hope that you enjoy some of the adventures that he's been on. And he's definitely a guest that we'll be having back more than once because he has a lot of stories to share with us. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with my dear friend, David Lobey. Well, everybody, I'm here with my guest, David Lovey, and uh, before we even got started, we are having some good laughs, and I think there's some more to come. So, David, let's get started with some questions. Sure. Um, what's a little-known fact about you? Uh, well, I don't know how little-known, since I am little-known myself, probably every fact about me is little-known, <laughs> but uh, one fact that what might be somewhat literally known is <laughs> I think we should start over. <laughs> Too late. No. All right. All right. Um, that I have a cannon and I shoot my cannon um, with gunpowder. Right. We're not referring to a camera cannon. <laughs> no. We're talking about an actual legit yeah civil war cannon civil war cannon that uh yeah people who love me are afraid that there are probably microscopic cracks in it and that one of these days it's going to turn into shrapnel and kill everyone who watches the cannon go off but what a way to go so, so when do you fire your cannon usually on the fourth of july uh the last couple of years i've chosen some random times to set it off though um but yeah we blow things up with it i shot a cannonball out of it once absolutely yeah so uh how did you acquire a cannon it was my dad's my dad got it in trade um i forgot what it was i think my dad was doing a big plumbing job my father was a, a plumber and uh and he was doing a big plumbing job, and the guy said to him, can I trade you a cannon for your work? And so my dad said, oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. Dreams do come true. Yeah, and uh, and he, you know, shot it off every year on the 4th of July for since before I was born. So it's a tradition. 
It is. It's yeah. the it's the Lovi tradition. Nice. It's the only Lovi tradition. But what a tradition to have. Actually, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on the 4th of July when I was a kid, the whole neighborhood used to come out to my house and watch the cannon go off. I mean, we would just invite everyone. And then they, people who we didn't know, you know, friends of friends of friends would come. And my mom would make uh, strawberry daiquiris. Okay. You know, we'd have a... We'd have a big party in the front yard, and uh, all and centered around the cannon firing off the cannon. Oh yeah, and then the Arlington Heights police would show up every single time because we had a neighbor that did not like the cannon, right? And, and it would set off all the car alarms on the block. I mean, it's the loudest noise you ever heard in your whole life, and uh, and so. Anyway, the cops would come, but my dad would give them free faucets. So, <laughs> you know, so they they never did anything about it. They were fine with the cannon going off. And they'd just be like, all right, are you done? You know, and my dad would tell the cops ah, two more times, you know, we'll shoot it off two more times. And then they, they'd say they pretended that, that they didn't hear that. Right. And like, then okay. Yeah. So you're done. Great. Yeah. yeah. And they would yeah. drive away, <laughs> which, of course, is highly illegal to shoot a cannon on a you know, a street, uh, in like a public. Is there, is there any place where it's actually like designated as a cannon zone? Cannon zones. Uh, yeah. yeah, probably like unincorporated townships would allow that. Um, but I mean, we would shoot the cannon off in the middle of suburbia, Arlington Heights, Illinois yeah. on, on the yeah. street in residential neighborhood. My dad would stuff the cannon with t-shirts. I mean, the half a can of gunpowder, uh, triple F gunpowder. And then, Stuff it with T-shirts, and uh, and then that thing would just explode. And the T-shirts, we would put, like, watermelons or stuffed animals in front of it, and they would just turn into dust. Right, obliterated. Utterly, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, if I had to choose a way to die, getting shot by cannon blast would probably be number one for me. Really? Because I thought maybe a bear that had been shot out of a cannon that would... Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, that bear would take you out on the way. I mean, the way I look at it is you only, as a Christian, you know, we only die once. And so we're going to be telling the story of how we died in heaven forever. Right. So it better be a good story. Like, I really don't want to die in like from COVID or some from some heart attack or being old. I, I really want to die like getting bitten by a snake or eaten by a bear, or shot by a cannon, or exploded, or something crazy like that. Something uh, dramatic. So that when I meet yeah. Charles Spurgeon, right, and he's like, hey, "How did you get here?" I, I, I kind of imagine that's how he spoke. Um, you know, I could be like, "Bro, cannon blast, cannon, never <laughs> saw it coming." Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's totally. Yeah. So. Anyway, I don't know how we got on that. No, that's great. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, that's because I asked the question. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. All right. So how do you drink your coffee? How do I drink my coffee? Uh, lots of cream, sugar, honey, cinnamon, pretty much how any girl would drink it. <laughs> any, anything but black. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what do you do for a career, for a living? Um, right now, I'm working as an editor for a Christian ministry in the Chicago Northwest suburbs. So I, I edit sermons for the, the preacher of a well-known preacher at a church and, um, and turn them into readable bits, basically. And what are some other ways that, uh, some other careers, some other ways that you made a living? 
Ah, I used to be the dumpster diver for Ace Hardware. Um, so what that job was? An official title? (laughs) I think I think it was what that job was is. Pretty much I was paid like $7 an hour to jump in the dumpster and make the garbage go down so they could fit more garbage in it. And that's what I did for four or five, six hours a day when I was a teenager. (laughs) All right. So if you weren't doing what you're doing, what's your dream job? Dumpster diver again, probably. Yeah. That would be your dream job. Back to... Yeah. (laughs) I mean... Compacting trash. That or federal air marshal like my friend does i would like to do that or or maybe like a pastor yeah i mean those basically all three are the same thing yeah so, totally yeah. or a spy but i don't know if i'd be a good spy actually i think I'm, I'm i'm too obnoxious you think so to be a spy well actually maybe that would work to my advantage i mean there's you can i mean i've only watched spies in movies i haven't met any real life spies but well you don't know if you've met any real life touche, spies. Touche. so you know? yeah there's like one philosophy that's like draw attention to yourself right so they don't notice it and then there's another one where it's like totally i could be unnoticed i could be a spy right now and just say i want to be a spy wink <laughs> right and then you know, i would never suspect it that's right that's amazing okay hide in plain sight you're inspiring I might be one. <laughs> All right. So where did you grow up at? Um, in Arlington Heights, northwest suburb of Chicago. Um, spent 27 years there before I got married. All right. Who is your favorite teacher and why? That I took in school? hmm mm-hmm. Oh, probably my favorite teacher was a guy named Doug Sweeney. Doug Sweeney was a professor of mine in seminary, a church history professor. Um, he was wonderful. That guy's just the best. And he was my favorite because he actually really cared about his students. Mm. I think even though he was a brilliant scholar, and anyone who knows Doug Sweeney knows that about him. He's a published author of many books, uh, world-renowned scholar on Jonathan Edwards, um, but... Even more than that, he's just a loving, friendly, mm. you know, caring guy. Yeah. And uh, and he doesn't own a cell phone, which is pretty rare, too. He's never owned a cell phone. Sounds empowering. Yeah, it's because he's a Puritan. <laughs> so <laughs> Just born in the wrong century. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but yeah, yeah, that guy, he uh, shepherded me. He was mm. a, a, a pastor- even though he was, he was not a pastor, but he was like a pastor and a scholar. He was right. A wonderful guy. What are three adjectives you'd use to describe yourself? <laughs> oh, man. Um, three adjectives to describe myself. Describe myself. I would say probably uh, somewhat eccentric. Maybe would would that be one that you would agree with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would not disagree with that. Yeah, um, probably I'm a little bit eccentric and um, strange. Nah, I don't just know. eccentric. Weird. Okay, those are three. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm eccentric. Another adjective would probably be 
um, skinny legged. <laughs> um, and then probably a third adjective would be fat bellied. <laughs> so I'm, I'm an eccentric, skinny legged, fat bellied person. I'm a skinny fat guy. So that I, you know, that's actually kind of the worst body type to have. It's like I would be all, I would rather be all the way fat or all the way skinny. But to have extremities that are like sticks, stick figures, and then the middle part, I'm basically built like a snowman with stick arms and legs and a rotund stomach. Snowmen don't really have legs, though. I mean, well, I mean, not if a snowman was built on twigs. There you go. Okay, yeah. I got you. That would be me. And that actually sort of rolls right into, you know, my testimony that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, But yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm I'm built like a pear, sort of, with a pear with sticks for legs, sort of like that. Um, That's an adjective, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Those are adjectives. <laughs> yeah. Let's yeah. move let's move to the lightning round. Sexy, actually. It's a sexy way of being built. That's yeah. That's another adjective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's only three though. You're limited to three. Yeah. So all right, so lightning round. Oh boy. So I'm gonna ask you questions, either or questions, just knee jerk reaction, and we're gonna move through this pretty quickly. <laughs> okay, so by the way, this is what got John MacArthur in trouble. <laughs> When, when someone said to him, Beth Moore, go home. So, so, so we'll, we'll see how uh, uh, offensive I can be in this. All right, go ahead. All right, Mac or PC? Uh, Mac. Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. ESV or NASB? NASB. Cake or pie? <sighs> oh, depends. But if it's lemon meringue pie, then pie. Okay, if you're at a uh, theme park, are you going on the rides or are you waiting on the bench? Waiting on the bench, as you well know. And are you going to be, you show up to a meeting, are you on time or are you late? I used to be late, but now I'm on time. Boom. All right. Thanks yeah. for joining us for the lightning round. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, David, do you remember the first time we met? I do. We were on uh, our friend Tim Sigler's back porch. Yeah. And uh, I asked you. Did you go up, grow up in a Christian home? And you said, no, definitely not. Right. And then I asked you, oh, how, how did you come to faith? Do you remember what you told me? What did I tell you? <laughs> like exact words? No. It had to do with uh, your legs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now I remember. Yeah. I came to faith because God gave me skinny legs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Skinny chicken legs. <clears throat> That's right. Yep. Yep. So would you like me to tell that story? I would. I think people would love to hear about why God giving you skinny chicken legs is how he used that to bring you to faith. Yeah, it's true, actually. Yeah. So that is how the Lord built me, fearfully and wonderfully made with very skinny with skinny legs. Skinny legs actually run in my family. Both my mother and father, but particularly my father, have like, you know, very thin, chicken-looking, twig-sized legs. 
And, uh, I mean, they work all right. I can still run, jump, and stand and use them. But they they are genetically thin because of how, how the Lord built me. Anyway, and so it was never even something that I realized um, just because they are my legs. I never had any other person's legs. And... Um, so going to school, like the first, I don't know, 10, 11 years of my life, it was never even an issue. I would wear shorts and, you know, kids would never even comment on the size of my calf muscles, for instance, being abnormally skinny. But when I got into um, junior high, then all of a sudden it was like, that was the only thing that anyone in the school wanted to talk about, make fun of me for, uh, kick me in the shins, beat me up, mm. throw me into lockers, you know, all kinds of terrible things. And and I went from being like a kind of a popular kid in grade school to being a total outcast, pariah in middle school. And I, I could not understand what it was. There was nothing that changed other than the fact that I, I changed schools. Um, and But even kids that had been my, my friends in grade school suddenly weren't anymore because it was it was not the popular thing to do to, to be my friend when I was in junior high. Hmm. And uh, like I said, so I was getting beat up a lot. And um, I told... My mother, I wanted to learn a martial art. I had seen a movie called Best of the Best, which was about an American Taekwondo team going to Korea to fight the Korean Taekwondo team. I don't even know. It had to have been on like some kind of public access channel or something. <laughs> that movie's not very easy to find, Best of the Best. Uh, but it was like uh, Julia Roberts' brother was in that film, actually. Um, anyway. So, so I saw that movie and I was like, yes, that is the martial art I want to learn. And there was, there happened to be in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, one of the world's most famous, well-known martial arts masters alive at that time. His name was Grandmaster Sankey Peck. He was known all over the place. He was on the like Olympic committee. He was very, very, uh, uh, famous Taekwondo practitioner and he was my Taekwondo master. And so I started learning under him. He was amazing. He was very old. He was in his seventies when I first started, uh, but could still do flips and stuff. It was incredible actually. And I met a friend named Rich. I'll redact his last name. Um, but Rich, uh, was also doing Taekwondo and he invited me to smoke marijuana with him when I was 12 years old around the back of the Taekwondo building. He, he had brought some marijuana and uh, we did that. And I actually um, put some of it in my shirt pocket for later. And my mom ended up doing the laundry that, the following day and found it. And, uh, you know, obviously if you find your kid who's 12 with marijuana in his shirt pocket, you know, that's going to be a problem. 
she was very upset by that, but I made up some kind of story to cover up. Yeah, I, I said I found it on the ground, and that I, which is so ridiculous. Uh, I said I found it on the ground, and that I, I wanted to dispose of it. I just didn't know what to do, so I put it in my pocket. <laughs> That's what I told her, and uh, and she believed me. And my dad was like, "Don't you BS a BSer?" So <laughs> he knew he knew that I was. Uh, you know, gotten high the night before, but they, they really didn't do anything. They didn't really discipline me. Um, oh, I, I should have said earlier. So, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. My Hmm. dad is a agnostic Jewish man. And uh, my mom was nominally Catholic. Um, she would call herself an Irish Catholic, but she stopped going to church after she met and married my father because the Catholic church told her that she shouldn't marry a Jewish man. And my dad was also divorced. So she stopped going to church. and didn't have any kind of religious upbringing whatsoever mm. uh, when I was growing up. And my mother always said, well, you can just choose whatever you want to do when you get older. Um, so I remember being in kindergarten actually, and someone asking me what religion I was. And I just said, I'm both. Just thinking that there's, <laughs> there's, these are two options. There are two. It's Jewish or Catholic. Right. You know, that's yeah. it. That's all there is. And I'm I, both. I'm both of them, I, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, but I never, like, I would never go into the synagogue. I would never go into church. I mean, I, I would go into church for Christmas Eve midnight mass mm-hmm. and when I was a kid. Just a couple of times, my mom would take me to that. And I liked it because... It was like that much closer to Santa Claus. Mm. So if I could stay up till one o'clock, one thirty in the morning, then Santa's right around the corner. Right there. You know? Yeah. So so anyway, that that was the extent of you know, anything having to do with God in my entire childhood whatsoever. So Fast forward. So then I was 12. I started smoking weed. My parents didn't really know what to do with that. I was just more clandestine after that. And uh, and Rich and I would continue to, he would get weed and then other drugs. By the time I was 13 or 14, I had already done um, LSD and I had done mushrooms and some other things too. And um, anyway, so that was uh, my memory of that time is actually kind of hazy because that's what drugs do to your brain. <laughs> it's it's quite astounding to me, actually, that I even have a functioning brain cell at all at 40 years old, given how much I did drugs from the age of 12 to the age of 22. Mm. Um, pretty much a daily experience for me during the most formative years of my development. And so... Um, so I was doing Taekwondo. I got very good at it. I actually competed in the junior Olympics in Taekwondo. Hmm. I got my black belt in Taekwondo and people stopped really messing with me after I would like practice martial arts in the hallway (laughs) of the the junior high. I'm like, do jumping kicks and stuff. And they just thought I was nuts. So the kids, the bullies didn't want to mess with it anymore. And uh, anyway, um, so doing as many as many drugs as I did, I wasn't getting good grades. They ended up testing me because my, my grades had 
gone from straight A's in grade school to D's and F's mm. when I was in junior high and they didn't know what was going on. So they, they gave me some kind of a test, like a learning disability test. And I didn't even care. I just filled in like A, C, B, B, C, D, A, B, <laughs> like that. Didn't even read the questions. And then sure enough, they're like, oh, yeah, there's something wrong with this kid. So they put me on a short bus and I had to spend my days in a one room classroom like the whole time, which was difficult for me. Uh, being with other kids that had a lot of other issues and stuff. Mm. I think that the school system sort of failed me. They didn't really realize what was going on in my life. And the reason why that I wasn't concentrating in school anymore was was because I felt so, uh, uh, well, because the kids were bullying me uh, first and sixth and part of seventh grade, but also because I, I was doing drugs and and uh, no one really knew about it. And then I got into high school. Uh, junior high was glad to get me out of there. I, <laughs> I got into high school and I had watched right before the my freshman year started, I watched another movie. It's amazing how people say movies don't impact children. Well, they certainly did for me <laughs> in a big way. I watched another movie called The Lost Map of the Shaolin. And... In that movie, there were like 12 kids that had a tattoo of a partial map on their back. And when the kids came together, it would lead to the treasure or something like that. And they were all Shaolin master kids. <laughs> so, And they all had shaved heads, completely bald heads, except for this sort of fountain of hair that would stick straight up like a fountain. And I saw that uh, in the summer of 1994. And I said, that is how I want to go to school for my first day of high school with a shaved head with a fountain sticking out of my head. And it was the coolest thing you've ever seen, right? It totally was. Yeah, it was amazing. And I went to the family barber who had cut all of our hair since I was born. And I was like, this is what I want. And he said, absolutely not, because your mother will kill me. Right. Like, not here, not now, not ever. Yeah. So... For the first time in my life, I went to some place I had never gone to, rode my bike and and uh, got my hair cut just like that, shaved completely to the skin with a razor, except for this kind of fountain of hair sticking straight up in the middle of my head. Do you have a picture of this? With a rubber band. Oh, somewhere, maybe. I got to look for it. I don't know. The world needs to see this. <laughs> anyway, so, so I went... To school, and the first day of school, I saw another kid named Rob come up to me with the exact same haircut, and <laughs> we pointed at each other. Like if you've seen the the meme with Spider Man pointing, and there's two Spider Men, and they're pointing at each other. That was me and him, and we're pointing. Oh, sorry, we're pointing at each other, and. I was like, lost man for the Shaolin. And he said, yeah, dude, I can't believe it. You watched that too? Uh, so we became instant friends. And from that friendship, he introduced me to rap music. Rob did. And and we, he also liked to smoke a lot of weed. And so, so me and him bonded over hip hop and marijuana. And after listening to like the mid-90s, 
hip hip hop rap scene, which that is still the golden years of rap music. I decided that that's something that I could do. I wanted to be a rapper. So I started writing songs in my house, writing rap songs and just practicing them. And, you know, I didn't have any equipment or beats or anything. I would just, I would just listen to a beat on a tape or something and, and write a rap to it and then rap. And well, this is a really long story. I'll just cut it short. I met a guy. My sister was getting confirmed in the Catholic church so that she could get married there to her husband. And for my sister's confirmation, there was a guy, a black guy sitting in front of me. And I, in my, you know, probably totally ignorant 14, 15 year old brain, I thought, well, he's a black guy, so he must know rappers. So, so I tapped him on the shoulder and I was like, Hey man, do you, do you know any rappers? He looked at me like, what a weird thing to ask in the middle of the Catholic Church <laughs> during a confirmation service for my sister. And, and he turned around and he was like, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I live on the south side of Chicago. And he gave me his contact information. And gosh, by this time, uh, no, I, I couldn't have been 14. I had to be 16 because I, I had. I was able to drive. Um, so yeah, I was about 16 by this point. And he asked me to come to his house. And I came to this random guy's house that I tapped on the shoulder from the Catholic church. Cause he had a relative that was being confirmed the same time as my sister. And he introduced me to the, these dudes from the South side from 59th and Ashland mm-hmm. uh, near, near the Inglewood neighborhood of Chicago who were actually pretty hardcore, real-life gangsters, uh, but who also did rap, and yeah. they were really talented. And they, I became friends with those guys, and I would spend my summers down on 59th and Ashland, or 59th and Justine, on the south side of Chicago, which I look back now as a 40-year-old man <laughs> who lives in the suburbs still, what the heck was I thinking spending my time down there? Cause I, I was, a, uh, certainly I stuck out. I'll just put it that way. So what was it like? How did you break in, in terms of like the relationship? Like how, how did they know that you were legit? Yeah. So that guy who I had met at the, at the church, he introduced me and he was like, Hey guys, this guy wants to be a rapper. You know. So did you rap for that guy at the wedding? Uh no, at the confirmation you mean? Yeah, the confirmation. Uh yeah, I did. Yeah. You did? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. I did a just a acapella rap for him that I had wrote. And written. And that was enough for him to be like, Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a sort of talented at the I mean, even in my young rapper stage. Yeah. I had yeah. some talent at that. And so he brought me down there and he's like, you guys need to listen to this white boy from Arlington Heights. And I rapped for them and they were like, all right, that's cool. And, you know, he, they sort of schooled me and it's actually, there is an art mm-hmm. to rap. There's a, a friend of mine who I met there gave, broke it down in sort of a scientific formula of how many syllables 
and uh, to put in every line and then yeah. gave me assignments to write songs like that, make words and sentences that rhyme with this many syllables. And he would do like a shapes. So there would be like a, uh, triangle, 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 square, square, circle, circle, circle. Oh, sorry. And inside each triangle, he'd put a number. And the number was the number of syllables in the line where there's the same shape. That's a rhyme sequence where the end of each line would rhyme with the sure. end of the same, with you know, the next line, right? And then when the shape turned to something else, that, like from a triangle to a circle, that was a new rhyme sequence. So he he really broke it down for me to, to sort of teach me, let me write my own words to the songs. But, but he uh, gave you a structure of yeah, to do with it. That's it was, fascinating. It was amazing, actually. It was a, like a real education in that. And, and he would critique it. And help me to get better at rhyme sequences. Um, yeah, he was brilliant, actually. His name was Nova. Nova was brilliant. He should have been famous, a famous rapper. Um, so I was doing that at the same time, trying to graduate from high school, but I wasn't focused on school. I had no um, interest in it whatsoever. My interest was martial arts and doing rap music. Yeah. And what, what do I need school for if I'm doing those things? I, that's I figured because nothing you'd ever done in school made a lick of difference with what you were doing in Taekwondo and on yes. the South Side, right? Like, yeah, totally. So I wasn't focused on school. I graduated by the skin of my teeth. My GPA was like a D plus, and so the only school that would take someone like me was a community college. Called Harper College. The only reason I went to Harper College is just because it was some something to do. And I was working some odd jobs, delivering pizzas and stuff. And I ended up going to Harper College. And the first semester that I was there, I was standing in the hallway. I think I was reading a hip-hop magazine, some kind of magazine. The Source? It was, it was The Source or XXL or I don't remember yeah. which one it was. And... and uh, Korean man walked up to me in the hallway and he said to me in broken English, excuse me, you want to study Bible like that? And I was like, man, really? Uh, are you a, are you Korean? And he said, yes, I'm Korean. And I said, bro, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, which is a Korean martial art. And he said to me, Oh, yes, I also have black belt. <laughs> and he pulled up his shirt and he had a leather black belt on his to hold his, up, yeah. hold his pants up. And so I thought that guy was pretty funny. And I said to him, yeah, man, all right, I'll keep an open mind. I'll go to your Bible study. I don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, never read the Bible, don't know anything about it whatsoever. And he said, oh, I'll give to you. And that night... He invited me to come to the library of Harper College in Palatine, Illinois, and do a Bible study. And I called a friend of mine named Carlo uh, because I was sort of concerned about this weirdo. Like, what did I just get myself into? 
but my friend hit was a Christian already. And I knew that. And he, I said to him, there's a guy that wants me to do Bible study. You got to come with me or I'm going to go. So he was really happy about that. And he actually, he brought another guy. So the three of us went to meet with this man named uh, Dr. Paul Coe in the Harper College Library. And he opened up the Bible, gave me a Bible. And he opened up the Bible to Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's it. Just one verse. And he started talking about it. There is a God. And he created all things. The heavens, the earth. He created you. And he have a purpose for your life. I was, I had never heard anything like that before. And he asked me. He said to me, do you know you have a purpose in your life? And I said, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I guess I do. And he said, your purpose is to serve God. Hmm. Anyway, so it was fascinating to me. Uh, like I said, I had never heard anything like that before. And he invited me to come back again the following week. And he invited the other people too, but they didn't want to come. And I, But I gave him my house phone number. Even right after I gave it to him, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have given him my phone number because uh, now this guy's going to call me all the time. He's probably from a cult or something. And sure enough, he called later that week just to make sure that I was coming the next week. And then <clears throat> following Tuesday came and I thought about going. And at the last second, I changed my mind. I was I was there. I was standing in the hallway and I saw him coming down the hallway and I, I hid in the classroom. I, I ditched him. I saw him walk right past me and I went home. Actually, I was super high. I had been smoking a joint in the parking lot and I thought, what did, what on earth did I get myself into here? Mm. And I went home and then he called that night and he said, I'm so sorry that I missed you. You know, I had no idea. He was driving all the way from Rogers Park in Chicago. Wow. All the way to Palatine to, just to meet with me. It was, wow. It was amazing. Um, and I ditched him, you know. And he said, I'm so sorry that I missed you. Please come next week. Just kind and sweet, yeah. you know. And so I felt guilty. So the next week I went there totally high. Smoke a joint in the parking lot of Harper College, and uh, they need to get some better security there because uh, <laughs> they probably have better security by now. But it went like that for two and a half whole, maybe maybe three, three whole years. It went like that. On and off, I would meet with Dr. Paul Coe. Mm. About halfway during those three years, he... Um, I had told him I had such a large bill from my school that I couldn't pay for it and I couldn't I couldn't continue to go to classes anymore. And he just said to me, how much is your bill? I said, man, it's like $4,000. And he took out his checkbook out of his briefcase and wrote me a check for $4,000. I wrote it to the school and said, you pay for your school and, and just gave it to me. I wasn't a Christian. I had treated him like dirt. And he just loved me, well, actually. And so I decided, because of his love for me, um, that I, I wanted to 
get more serious about studying the Bible. I'd had a girlfriend that I was immoral with, and she had told me that there was a possibility that we could have shared a STD and it scared the life out of me. Um, I went to the doctor and the you know, doctor said that I, I didn't have that anything, thankfully, uh, but it scared me that, you know, she could have called me and said that I had HIV because I was living a completely immoral lifestyle. Um, and then I really got serious. Okay, if there is a God and if the Bible is his word, I want to know it. And uh, so I started to go to Bible study seriously and not really smoke as much weed beforehand anymore. I, I didn't give it up completely, but but when I would go, I wouldn't smoke. And And then one day in August of 2002, one day, one day, Dr. Ko asked me if I wanted to go to like an overnight conference, three days. It was up in Kenosha, Wisconsin at Carthage College and listen to preachers and kind of stay in like a dorm area and be with other believers and stuff. And I still wasn't a Christian at that point. And so it, I told him, okay, I, I would I would go to that just mostly because I, I had made the commitment to become serious about Bible study. And while I was there, I heard a message on Mark chapter 8 where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I heard the, a message on that verse and pastor told us to go out and write on a sheet of paper what God had done for us in our lives. And if at the end of that, we could answer like Peter did, who do you say Jesus is? Could we answer he is the Christ or not? And so I took this sheet of paper. I went outside with my friend Ben and Maria. We had been talking about sexuality, the three of us, me and Ben and Maria. And they had both said to me that they had never even kissed someone before other than their parents kissed them. They never kissed anyone. And I thought, like, are you aliens? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? Because by this time... I had had lots of girlfriends and we'd done all kinds of bad things. And I couldn't believe that they were serious, that there were even, that there was even such a thing as a 22, 23 year old person who had never even kissed someone. Anyway, they ended up getting married. <laughs> of course they got married. They're still married to this day. Good friends of mine now. And both of them were Christians. That's why they wanted to keep themselves pure and, they had been praying for me, and I didn't know it. Um, matter of fact, way back when Dr. Ko asked me to Bible study, they had prayed in the doorway of Harper College and said, Lord, send us to someone who will listen to your word and believe it. They told me that many years later. And I was the first person when they looked up. I was the first person standing in the hallway that they saw. It's pretty amazing. And... So, so I heard this message and I go outside with Ben and Maria and I had this sheet of paper and a pen and I start writing the things that I had been learning in Bible study about who Jesus is. And really, we hadn't even gotten through, through Genesis, but Dr. Coe would always bring it back to Jesus. And suddenly it was like, I don't know, the closest thing to, that I can describe it is like a bolt of lightning hit me. 
I was suddenly convicted of my sin and how grievously I had sinned against God in my life. And my very first thought was that I deserve to die, that God is holy, (laughs) and that he was going to kill me for how I had lived and for how long I had rejected him and for how little, how little uh, I thought about him uh, to live my life in the way that I wanted to live it instead of his way. And so I started weeping, crying, um, mostly out of just sorrow for my sin and fear Mm. that God had every right to, to destroy me. And Ben came over to me and put his armor on me and he asked me why I was emotional. And I told him that, that I'm a sinner and that God could never love someone like me. And he said to me, you're the exact kind of person that Jesus came to save because Christ is a friend to sinners. And I told him, I I can't believe that Jesus would want to save me though. He doesn't save bad people. He saves good people. (laughs) I had it totally twisted, totally opposite, you know? And he said, no, you're wrong about that. You, he came to save you, David. All you must do is turn and call on him and ask him for forgiveness and he will forgive you. Turn, put your faith in him, trust in him, trust what he did for you on the cross. And I did. And I did. In that moment, I did. And the Lord saved me that day. That was August 5th, 2002. I had a bag of marijuana in my pocket when the Lord saved me. And uh, I brought it to the Bible conference. Yeah. And he brought me inside and asked me to talk to the pastor and I did. And then they, they asked me to share what God had done in my life and heart that night in front of everybody at the conference, like three, 400 people. And I wasn't a public speaker or anything like that. I was a 22 year old little punk (laughs) and a rapper. Still, I was a rapper. And, uh, and I got up and I just told them, I recounted what I just recounted for you. Hmm. The Lord's grace to me and love for someone as wretched as I am. Um, And God totally, utterly changed my heart that day. And like uh, my favorite imagery in the Bible of the new birth is Ezekiel's imagery of the Lord taking out the heart of stone Mm -hmm. and giving a heart of flesh and putting his spirit uh, inside of the believer to cause the one with the new heart to obey God. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my experience. And, and I've wanted to serve him ever since. Of course, I'm not perfect in doing that, but, uh, but the inclination of my affections and my heart was then toward God from that point forward. And so real quick, connect all the dots again. So if it wasn't for skinny chicken legs, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah. So if it wasn't for God making me with 
very skinny legs, sort of looking like a snowman if a snowman had sticks for legs. That's sort of how I look. Uh, <laughs> if you want to picture the voice that's coming through your computers right now, just picture that. <laughs> and And had God not given me skinny legs, I would not have been uh, bullied in the way that I was. And I would not have joined Taekwondo and met my friend Rich and started doing drugs and probably from the drugs have gotten the crazy haircut that I stupidly decided to get where I met my friend Rob, who introduced me to hip hop music from hip hop hop music. I realized I wanted to be a rapper so I didn't have to care about school anymore and like at all. And so I got bad enough grades that the only school that would take me is Harper College, which is where God ordained that a Gentile would make a half Jewish boy jealous yep. of what he had. Romans eleven eleven. Yeah, that's right, man. And that's that is actually borne out in my own life that I could look at Dr. Paul Coe, Korean man, in every way categorically different than me. He was a, an endocrinologist. He was a doctor at the University of Chicago. He had every kind of academic degree you could imagine. Uber brilliant man. I was a little punk and something, I have to believe it's the drawing of God, Amen. drew me to listen to that man and his love for me affected me and changed I mean, the Holy Spirit changed my heart through it. And that is that is God's amazing providence in bringing me to himself. And where did, where did Co think he was going? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a whole hilarious story, too. Because when, so Dr. Co was getting his degree, his first medical degree. The guy has two medical degrees, two MDs. He got his first at a place called the, uh, Seoul National University, which is the Harvard of Korea. And then moved to America and had to get his medical degree all over again because Americans' hospitals do not accept foreign degrees. And then went to the University of Chicago to get his second MD to do all the study again. But before he came here, he had asked a missionary friend of his, he said, you know, I really want to go to reach the most pagans, wherever the most pagans are. I want to go there and preach the gospel of them. And so his friend said, oh, you should go to Harper College. <laughs> there must have been static on the line because Dr. Coe thought that he had said Harvard, not Harper. <laughs> <laughs> so he had this in his mind that he was coming to like a Harvard extension campus in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> Instead of a community college, uh, you learned pretty quickly that that's not what it was. <laughs> not Harvard. <laughs> not Harvard. Um, but he didn't regret it, I think, uh, because cause God worked through it in such a mighty way. And, and I'm so, so, so grateful, uh, uh, forever grateful to Dr. Paul Coe. I can never repay him for what he did for me. And my... Uh, I don't know, advice or word of encouragement, I think, 
from my own personal testimony is this, that Dr. Coe shared the scripture with me faithfully when I was an unbeliever for three whole years, almost every week. And there was no evidence during that time that I would ever turn to Christ. And my heart was like a stone, but he loved me and persevered and continued to show the love of God to me, no matter what. Knowing, as a medical doctor, he's brilliant. He knows I'm high when I was in Bible study. He knew that. It didn't matter to him. He just loved me. <laughs> and I, I think that that shows us um, that we should never give up on anybody. That's good. Yeah, amen. Thank you, David. I appreciate you sharing that story, brother. So, David, let's talk a little bit about your life before you came to faith. Um, tell us about a time when you came into a little bit of extra money. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I'll, I'll try to give the Reader's Digest version of this story. When I turned 21, my parents asked me what I wanted for my birthday. So, I told them I wanted to go to the casino because I had never been to a casino before. And... So they brought me to the Grand Victoria Casino in Elgin, Illinois, and gave me a hundred bucks and said, have fun losing it all. And uh, and then my mom and dad went and they went to like the slot machines or something. But I went to this table called Caribbean Stud Poker, which I didn't know anything about really. I had played a little bit of poker when I was in college, but um, but I didn't know this particular game, Caribbean Stud, which basically... It's you just get five cards, you play against the dealer. If your hand is better than his hand, you win. But um, but at this particular casino, which, again, I didn't know until much later, they actually, the odds are incredibly in, the, in favor of the casino because in order to get paid, the dealer has to qualify, have a, a what's called a qualifying hand, which is an ace, king, or higher. And if he doesn't have a qualifying hand, he doesn't have to pay you anything. Right. Or just you get your ante back, it's called. So anyway, uh, yeah, those are really terrible odds in the the ante, which is the, the first kind of bet that you put down. Um, there's a minimum of $15. And then if you want to stay in the hand, once you see your hand and you want to stay in and bet against the dealer, you have to double the ante. So you have to bet another $30. That's $45 per hand. Um, needless to say, they're raking in money at that place. And um, so, you know, my parents thought I was going to lose money right away. Well, I was still there an hour later and I was up. I probably had 400 bucks. They had given me a hundred and I, I'd done all right at it. And, um, and they had lost their money. My mom and dad did. And so they asked me, uh, you know, when do you want to go? <laughs> we are, we're already out of our money. We're done. And I said, let's just stay for three more hands. That's it. So the first hand was a push. I mean, the dealer didn't qualify, but I stayed in. So he gave me the ante back. And then then my second hand that I got I looked at it and it was a three, four, five, six, seven of all clubs. So it's called a straight flush, which is one of the highest hands in poker you can get. I mean, the only thing better than that would be a higher straight flush or a royal flush, but it's better than four aces, you know. Um, and so I got this straight flush, three, four, five, six, seven of clubs. 
Now, I knew that it was a good hand, but I didn't really know how good. And since we're only playing against a dealer, the guy next to me saw my hand and he said, oh, dude, you want a lot of money on that. I said, really? How much money you think? And he's, oh, man, at least probably a thousand dollars, you know. So at these casinos, they also have another way to rip people off, which is that you put like a dollar coin in a little slot and that is for, um, they have like a rolling uh, bonus thing where if you have a really great hand, you could get this kind of bonus money for the hand and as long as you put the extra dollar in the slot. So I just, out of habit that night of doing that, I put the dollar in. I made my bet the dealer had two queens in his hand. And so when I flipped, which means that he qualified. So when I flipped my hand over, the dealer said, wow, congratulations, and pressed this button and lights were going off and stuff. And I asked him, how much money did I win? And he said, 10% of the pot. And the pot was that bonus money. How much is the pot? The pot was $127,000, right? So 10% of that is $12,700. So I was freaking out. I mean, as a 21-year-old kid, I had just had my birthday two days before that. You know, it might as well have been a million dollars to me, $12,000 more money I've ever seen in my life. And uh, and so so the pit boss comes over because I, I used to have a very young-looking face and, uh, and a young-looking body as well, as well. I was like, 120 pounds soaking wet. And I looked like a little kid when I was 21 years old. Anyway, uh, so he looked at my driver's license with a magnifying glass to make sure I was 21 because they didn't want to pay out that money anyway. And um, so the guy says to me, the pit boss says to me, do you want to take the taxes out now or at tax time? And I, I looked at my parents and they were just like, take it out now, you know, just get the money for it. So it was uh, $3,000, just approximately, almost exactly $3,000. So I had won 12700 And then the guy brought out this tax form and he writes like minus 3000 some odd dollars. And then underneath that equals 9700 something like that. It was very close to 9700 And so... He writes out the tax thing and then he puts the chips that are, you know, obviously worth money, big bucket of chips uh, right in front of me. And he's like, congratulations. And all the lights were going off and people were cheering. The guy next to me was really angry because he said that if I hadn't come to the table, he would have won that money. <laughs> so, <laughs> too bad. And anyway, so, uh, so my parents are like, let's just go to the cage and cash it out right now. Get out of here. So I went to the cage, which is where you get the money. They turn your chips into money. And um, I went to the cage. I pushed the chip bucket underneath the cage thing. And the lady who was counting the money, she said, oh, do you have the tax form? Just give me that instead, so I don't have to count all the chips. So I gave her the tax form. And now, like I said, it was supposed to be under $10,000 in cash that I was getting. 
And so she starts counting the money, hundreds, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, ten, two, like that. She is counting, I'm watching her, and then she takes a stack of hundreds and puts a 10,000 marker on it, and then keeps counting more money. And I'm looking at it like, what is going on here? Right? I don't know. Why does she keep counting money? And I look at my dad, and my dad whispers to me out of the corner of his mouth, shut up. <laughs> like that. I was not a Christian at this time, and neither was my dad. And, right, uh, and your dad's like, just let it play out. Oh, yeah. and Because innocent David Lovey. Yeah, I would have told them. Yeah. You know, but... My father's just like, keep, shut up. keep your mouth shut. And anyway, and the stack of hundreds is getting higher and higher. And then she takes a rubber band and puts it around the stack of $100 bills, which I knew at this point was way more than $9,700. And I put it in my jacket pocket. And I was like, see ya. And we bolted out of there, my mom and my dad and me. We get in the car, we start driving home. I'm in the back seat counting this money, and she accidentally gave me $17,700 in cash by accident. Now, I had only won $12,700, but the reason she gave me $17,700 is because the guy, the pit boss, when he wrote the one, two on the top line, he wrote a two like a Z. Right? You know how some people make a two yeah. and they write it like a Z, you know? Well, the bottom of the Z part on the two was on the black line of the form. So it looked like it said 17700. Wow. She didn't even look at the rest of the form where it said minus this much and yeah. equals this much. She didn't even look at that. She just looked at the top part and handed me this. So it's almost doubled the payout. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Almost exactly double. Yeah. So what happens next? So, so at this time, because this was January 28th of 2001, my parents had a car phone still, and uh, like in the center console. And so before we could drive from Elgin to Arlington Heights, we were on the highway on the way home. My little brother called the car phone and said, the casino is calling saying they want their money back right now. So, yeah. So I told my dad, let's just turn around and go back. I'll give the money back to them, you know. And he said, you're not giving them beep. So (laughs) I said, oh, I think we should. Anyway, he drove back to the house. Phone is off the hook. I mean, it, it was just ringing and ringing. My dad answered it. And it was, of course, the casino. And my father says to them, uh, what money? What are you talking? My son didn't win any money today. <laughs> and then they said, sir, we're looking at you standing next to your son right now. As the woman is counting out the money, uh, the, our former employee is counting uh, out the money to your son. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't good either. But um, And then my dad was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. No, he doesn't have any money. And then the casino said to him, uh, you don't want to mess with us. Mm. And, of course, I'm thinking Joe Pesci is going right, to come. Right, it's like a mob boss movie all of a sudden. To right? my yeah. house. Yeah. 
with a baseball bat. Right. There goes your kneecaps. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And so I was just like, Dad, I'm going to go back. Come on. And he was so mad. And so he's like, you're threatening me on the phone to the to the casino people. He, he started cursing at them and then slammed the phone down on the receiver, which is one thing I don't like about cell phones. Now, Can't. you cannot slam the phone down. Right. You just I wanna, get really upset. You're just like, beep. Yeah, that's right. I want to get a landline just so I can slam the phone down. Again. There's there's a, there's Bluetooth yeah. phones you can get oh. that will connect to your cell phone. So that way you can have like the handle experience really? of a traditional phone. And then you can have something to slam Interesting. down. Interesting. So, yeah. Something, something to get for your birthday. It's a way to have stress relief, man. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so... My dad curses out the casino people and then tells me, here's a hundred bucks out of this money. I'm going to put the rest in the safe in the basement. Just enjoy yourself tonight. Go out with your friends and we'll talk about this in the morning and we'll figure it out. So I went bowling with my buddies, brought them, eventually brought them back to the house to show them like this enormous stack of money, which is more money I'd ever seen in my whole life. Right. Um, but then I was hanging out till like three o'clock in the morning. Finally went to sleep. As of course, at this time I was still living with my parents, and so I was. I went to sleep at like two or three in the morning, and then at six a.m., my father came in my room and shook me awake, and said, "Get dressed, come downstairs." And uh, and I I still had like bedhead. My hair was sticking straight up, <laughs> and news cameras were in my parents' living room and they had they had a, a, a show called Fox Thing in the Morning <laughs> was there in the living room. My dad had called them right after I left to go bowling with my buddies the night before and told them the casino's threatening my son and threatening me and they overpaid him and blah, 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 all of this. And Fox picked it right up and they came over to the house to interview me live as I'm walking down the stairs, like, and here he is now. It's <laughs> stuck a camera in my face with bedhead hair, which I was so mad about. Like, I wish my dad would have just told me to put a hat on, which I, I later did because I had like four interviews that day, on various news sources. Anyway, so, <laughs> which is crazy. It must've been a slow news day, but, um, so they said to me, the news was like, you know, so how do you feel? And are you going to return the money? And what are you going to do with the money? And I told them I'm going to make my rap album because I'm a rapper. And so they said, really, can you do a rap for us? So I said, sure. So I went over to my Roland MC505 group box where I had made a bunch of beats on it, turned it on real fast, picked a beat, and I started just rapping. On the news. Do you remember what you rapped? Oh, probably not. Now it wouldn't be appropriate for, gotcha. your, for your listening audience. Um, yeah, I think they had to actually censor me a couple of times uh, <laughs> live. Anyway, play play some other music on top of me. But uh, anyway, so I'm like rapping on the news, and then the news anchor, like when it cuts back to them. They were like, we'll see him at the Grammys. <laughs> it's like, I am famous. <laughs> and, which, amazingly, my future father-in-law 
had seen that interview of me before I ever met his daughter, which is pretty crazy. And uh, so when I introduced myself to him, he remembered me from that. Um, (laughs) Because I started dating his daughter like two weeks later, which is, of course, the reason why she wanted to date me, because I was rich. (laughs) And I could buy as many Papa Do's seafood kitchen dinners for her as she wanted with all of that stack of cash that I had. And so anyway, I rapped on the news. And then later on that day, I got a phone call from this guy at the house phone. You know, this is like before widespread cell phones. And he said, uh, my mom answered and she was like, oh, there's somebody named Stoney on the phone for you. And I answered the phone and he was like, yes, David, my name is Stoney. I'm the producer of the Steve Dahl radio show. Do you know who Steve Dahl is? And I was like, no, because I was a rapper, you know, but uh oh, sorry about that. Um, Anyway, so so she asked me if I knew who Steve Dahl or the guy asked me if I knew who Steve Dahl was. And I said, no. And he said, well, he's sort of a famous radio disc jockey. And we heard you rapping on the news. Uh, this morning, in the, in the morning, and Steve Dahl would like you to make a song for his radio show, to be his introduction to the Steve Dahl show. And uh, so I did it. So I made this, the introduction to the Steve Dahl show, a rap about Steve Dahl. And uh, that one I could probably do for you. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear it? Let's hear it. I still remember it after all these years, 19 years later. Um, it went like this. We listened to 105.9 on my block. The original shock jock Steve Dahl is blowing up the spot. From 2 o'clock on to drive home, put me in a zone when I'm alone. Get on the phone at a dial tone. I'm calling the backbone of talk radio. Have an interview with centerfolds. Windy City Code, breaking the mold. You got me sold on the funniest show since the Huxtables. EPCKG on the roll. Leave it to me, the catalyst on a stroll. Turn the volume up and never leave it low. Stack of money dough, in a dough, really dough. Full show, let's go. We'll listen to the Steve Dahl show. Yo, yo, turn on the radio. Said, listen to the Steve Dahl show like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it had music behind it and it was like, it was his intro song for a little while. So after I did the Steve Dahl radio show introduction song, I was on top of the world. I was spending money like crazy and, oh, sorry about that. Turn this thing off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was spending money on like crazy. I bought three leather jackets and a lot of nice like lobster dinners. And so my dad had a lawyer friend and a lawyer friend told him, if we take this thing to court, you're going to lose. The judge is going to, you know, fine. Just because they overpay you by accident doesn't mean you can keep that money. <laughs> so my dad called up the casino for me and said, okay, if my son gives the money back, what are you going to give to him? You know, it's like $8,000 extra that they paid me that uh, I could just say I spent it all. And what are they going to do? Sue me? I wouldn't have any money left. So whatever. But 
So they were like, oh, well, he, we'll give him a free buffet dinner. Free <laughs> <laughs> grand. At the, yeah, at the casino. And my father said, no, you'll have to do a little better than that. And then they said, well, what if, what if we let him keep an extra thousand? So he only gives back 7,000 out of the eight that we overpaid him for your trouble. And I said, let's just take the deal because I did not want the mafia to kill me. And so. Well, you still went from $100 that wasn't even yours to a thousand, to $10,000. 10000 so. yeah. yeah. Almost 11000 bucks. I, I ended up walking away with. They sent two guys with guns on their belts over to the house to collect the money. Yeah, they didn't even want me to bring it to the casino. They sent these guys over and they collected the money. And, and then here's the moral of the story, though. So I ended up with over $10,000 and all of that money was gone in one month. It was one month. I spent 10 G's in one month. And I, like I said, I was a, I was still a pagan. And yeah. so I, I, I didn't tithe any of that or whatever. And I realized through that experience, actually, personally, I, I gained a conviction um, that gambling is, is not good and not God honoring. And, primarily, I mean, that was after I became a Christian, not, not very long after that happened, I became a Christian. And, um, and I realized that any money that a person wins in a casino is money that someone else has lost. And in many cases, it's money that someone else has lost that they needed to pay for their mortgage or to put food in their children's mouths. And so I feel like, and this is just my personal conviction, I know other Christians feel differently about it, but that money that I would win in a casino is in some ways almost blood money. Um, that that it really is uh, sort of dirty to me mm. be, because of that fact. Now, not everyone who loses their money you know, uh, that that's, that's going to affect their life if they do that. But there are people who do and, and someone else is going to win it. And so I didn't want to take part in that anymore. And yeah. that, that was one of the last times or maybe even the last, no, it was one of the last times I ever went to the casino was, uh, was the time I won that money first and last time. Uh, I might think I might've gone like once or twice after that. Um, but then I, I really stopped gambling because of that. I mean, I'll play poker with some friends you know, around a table, if it's small, you know, 10 bucks or something like that. But I don't like high stakes gambling for that reason. So David, tell me about a time that you traveled to Europe. Um, yeah, I've been to Europe a few times for various reasons and occasions. Um, is there one in particular that you'd like to hear about? Um, perhaps a trip to... Canterbury or? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Canterbury. 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 Um, Yeah. So I was asked to go and speak at a conference that a ministry called Grace to You, uh, John MacArthur's ministry, was putting on in Europe. The director of Grace to Europe had asked me to come and and speak at it. Um, But I also had an opportunity during that time to preach at the oldest Baptist church in the whole world. 
on their 464th anniversary, which is pretty cool. As Charles Spurgeon had preached in that pulpit before, and uh, they had asked me to do it. And actually, Spurgeon preached on the same day, but, you know, whatever, 150 years before, because they they have guest preachers come in on their anniversary since they're so old. And so it was called uh, Athorn Baptist Church. So the um, pastor of that church had arranged to pick me up from the airport. And of course, when you go overseas, uh, you know, there's a time difference and uh, I wanted to stay up as late as possible so I could get adjusted to the time difference. So he'd asked me, what did I want to do that day after my plane landed? Um, And he gave me some options. And one of them was to go to the Canterbury Cathedral, which is pretty cool place. That's the, like the, basically the Vatican for Anglicans, you know, that's where the archbishop has his headquarters in Canterbury. And so, uh, so I'd never been to Canterbury. We, uh, took a drive out there. It's actually beautiful town. Canterbury, England is beautiful. The whole area on the East coast there is really nice. We went to Dover and saw the cliffs of Dover and a place called Sandwich. I don't think that's where they first invented sandwiches, but I had a sandwich in Sandwich, which was, you know, ironical. And Delicious? Yeah, it was. <laughs> and um, anyway, I mean, just as the English are known for their cuisine. So, so <laughs> that's, that's not an exaggeration. So anyway, so we ended up going to Canterbury Cathedral. They had this turnstile in the front where you have to pay, it's something crazy, like 20 pounds to get into the church. Which would be like how much in dollars? 35 bucks. 35 bucks to get into just, church. Just to walk in. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, the, of course, then I implemented that at my own church. Right. And put a turnstile oh, in the front and charged people. No, yeah. I didn't. And then shut it down. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah. I didn't do that, but I thought, man, that's, well, that's how they stay open, I guess. Um, and so, mm. so the pastor of that church was very kind and he, uh, paid the fee for me and a friend of mine also, who's a, a movie producer, um, was also with us and we, we all got in there and I'm just walking around this amazing, beautiful cathedral. I mean, if, if you've never been to Canterbury, I suggest your listeners should go, uh, to that church. It's just, just amazing. A lot of dead bodies are buried in it, actually. Oh, and, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of graves that are actually like in the floor of the church that you're walking on as you're walking in there. It's very interesting. Um, anyway. So far, definitely worth the price of admission. To- to- totally. And like famous, famous people in church history are buried there. Ooh, I think William Laud is buried there. And there's there's a few different really kind of cool things. And they have artifacts like knight's armor and stuff that, that uh, they have in there. Anyway, so I was taking a tour. It wasn't a guided tour. You could just walk around there. And I saw sort of way down uh, toward the more front of the cathedral, there was this incredibly ornate, tall pulpit with stairs going up it. And and uh, and it had a wooden door 
on the side of the pulpit, and the door was open. And I'm a preacher, and so I was just like, you know, there's no sign here that says I shouldn't go in. No rope, no nothing. There was no rope or anything like that. And uh, and so I climbed the stairs and went through this wooden door into this pulpit. And I was, you know, just preaching to no one <laughs> from, from, from the pulpit. But, you know, this is a shouting church, you know. <laughs> like that. And, uh, and, uh, I was goofing around a little bit and, and my buddy took a couple of pictures of me standing in this super, like the most ornate pulpit you've ever seen in your entire life. And all of a sudden from all the way at the other end of the cathedral, I hear this very shrill woman's voice shouting. At first it was sort of unintelligible. And then I could hear her, Get out of there! <laughs> Get out of there. She's screaming. Like, But I didn't think she was talking to me. Right. <laughs> I didn't know who she was talking to. Because you didn't cross any ropes. Uh, no. You just went through the open door. <laughs> and, and I was, uh, and actually also I was wearing like, since when in England act like the English, Right, so I was wearing like a bowler hat on my head as well, and <laughs> just because I thought that's what English people do, and um, and the screaming got louder and more near to me, and I looked out of the corner of my eye, <laughs> and I see this very short woman running toward me, shouting and pointing her finger, screaming at me to get out of this pulpit but still it didn't really register so i took a few more poses you know in the, like i still didn't exactly i couldn't exactly tell that she was talking to me until she got ran up the stairs and grabbed me by my shirt collar and she said get out of there you're in the bishop's throne and I said, what is the bishop's throne? Right? I don't know. I don't know these Anglican terms. Yeah, any good evangelical has no idea what she's talking about. Yeah. The bishop's throne. You are the only person other than the archbishop who's ever stood in that pulpit. Get out! Like that. So, as far as this lady was saying, me and the janitors, okay, who cleaned the place, probably. Um, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the head of the Anglican Church, is the only person who is allowed to be in the place where I was standing. That's called the Bishop's Throne. And there I was hanging out <laughs> in his throne. Something like, I mean, I don't know why they call it a throne. It's a pulpit. But um, anyway, <laughs> and then she snatched the the hat off of my head as well. She's like, what are you doing wearing a hat in here? Don't you know you're the only person in the last 400 years that stood in that pulpit other than the bishop? <laughs> Which I later found out as a slight exaggeration, but um, what she said to me was an exaggeration. But um, anyway, and then she like, how dare you wear a hat in this place? 
And it came to me uh, very quickly. I'm usually not very quick, but uh, but I realized, well, her guy wears a hat, too. He's the archbishop. <laughs> right. He's got a funky looking hat so on. So I said to her, I mean, you, you know, the guy who is throwing this is, he wears a hat, too. <laughs> and she was, she was going to kick us out of there, even right. though we had paid the fee of admission. And she said that I snuck into the pulpit and jumped over the door. Well, I closed the door behind me. As, right. As, you know, I don't live in a barn. Right. Okay. You're polite. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's not be crazy. I didn't jump over the door, the wooden door of the bishop's throne uh, <laughs> when, when I first came there. So, um, anyway, yeah. I'm warning you. You better behave yourself. Like that, she said to me. And, um, yeah, so... So that was my that was my story of being in the bishop's throne in Canterbury, and uh, I actually have a picture to prove that I was in the bishop's throne. Um, and who knows? I mean, maybe it's a sign. I'm only forty years old, and I still have time to become the Archbishop of Canterbury if I become an Anglican and work my way up the ranks, get hired for that job. I would bring some evangelical doctrine back to the Anglican Church. Maybe, you know, that, that's something that could happen someday. So. All right. Well, we might just be posting that picture. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Well, that's a wrap today, folks. Thanks for joining us on Hall Talk. I'm your host, Jared Hall. And as always, feel free to reach out to me with any Bible questions or if you need a guest preacher or teacher. I always love to be able to serve in that capacity. And until next time, I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Hall Talk. Share your voice by leaving a comment or asking a question. Join the team by hitting like, subscribing, and sharing with others. As always, join us next time for more insights and conversations on Hall Talk.